Hi, I'm Mark Rotterman. Coming up, the number of homeschool families in North Carolina doubles during the pandemic. We'll get the latest from the General Assembly and the crisis at the border accelerates. Next. Major funding for Front Row is provided by Robert L. Luddy. Additional funding provided by... Funding for the lightning round provided by NC Realtors, State Employees Association of North Carolina, Mary Louise and John Burris, Reifenberg Construction, Stefan Gleason, and Jane and Van Hip. A complete list of funders can be found at pbsnc.org slash front row. It's Front Row with host Mark Rotterman. Welcome back. Joining the conversation, Mitch Kokai with Carolina Journal, communications consultant Donna King, political analyst Joe Stewart, and Democratic State Senator Sidney Batch. Let's begin with the homeschools numbers. Donna, yes. why don't you kick us off? Very interesting information coming out. Back in the spring, about 5.5% of families nationwide identified as a homeschooling family. Uh, here in North Carolina, it was about 5%. Well, between spring and this fall, it's about doubled nationwide. Now it's 11% of people say they are homeschooling. Here in North Carolina, about 9.5%. But I think what that shows is it's really been an unprecedented time for families, particularly with school-aged children, uh, you know, unpredictable. They've had difficulty, you know, figuring out if they should be in school, whether they're getting the right education. And I think what we're really seeing is parents deciding they're going to take control of their children's education and uh, they're going to get involved. And that's something that I know teachers, public school, private school have said for a long time, that parents really need to show their vested interest in their child's education. But what we're also seeing is another poll uh, of home, done by a school choice advocacy group said that now about 71 percent of Americans say that they are in favor of school choice, of broadening some of the options available for students and parents as they embark on their education. Now, families who identify as black or um, or African-American, that increase in homeschooling was five times the number from last spring. So we're really seeing the school choice homeschooling movement get real traction, particularly in that community. Mitch, is this a trend, you think? Yeah, certainly, I think it is a trend. Obviously, what we've seen in the numbers for the past year are based on COVID and the fact that parents have been uncertain about what their traditional schools are going to be doing, whether people are going to be in the classroom, working completely from home, some sort of mix. So that's had an impact. But I think what will be very interesting to see is where the numbers go from here. Once we see the public schools get back to more of a traditional setting, how many parents say homeschooling was fine, let's get back to the traditional schools, and how many of them say, you know, this homeschooling thing, I wasn't really sure about it, but now I like it. I think we are gonna see elevated numbers from what we saw before, even as many of these students return to their traditional settings. Sydney, weigh in here, please. Yeah, I think we shouldn't be surprised by the fact that there's so many uh, people have enrolled in homeschool. Three million women have, have left the workforce. Um, over since the pandemic. And so women disproportionately, of course, are, are responsible for childcare. Many of the women lost their jobs because they were laid off. And then many had a, had no choice to stay at home because childcare centers and, and schools were closed. So it's not surprising that we've seen an increase in homeschooling. And to Mitch's point, I'm not sure that it's actually, I think it will stay elevated, but not as elevated as now, simply because schools are reopening. Um, and when the pandemic passes, I think we'll be in a different position where people will be back to work, 
3 million women that were already in the workforce will go back and won't be in the position to be able to continue to homeschool. Joe, put us this in perspective. What's the impact on uh, public schools, you think? Well, the notion that you build a facility and have people go there to be taught an education is deeply rooted in the fourth century BC. I mean, hopefully we don't waste a perfectly good crisis here and take a thorough look at how we're providing education for our young people. Are we preparing them the right way for the jobs of the 21st century? We, we already know that surveys have shown in the future jobs with a technical proficiency will be far more in demand than what's necessary uh, to achieve through a four-year degree in, in a, a college. So we probably need to take a wholesale look, not just at the structure of public education in terms of where we're educating young people, but what the curriculum is and what we're doing to make sure that young people graduate from high school ready to compete in a global economy. Now to wrap this up in about 30 seconds, please. So I think all those are really important points. Uh, you know, we can't let it go unnoticed that a lot of companies, a lot of schools are really going to have to improve and increase their flexibility for uh, working parents who want to perhaps continue being disinvolved in education and they want the opportunity to work from home and help their kids and, and alter, you know, perhaps how their children are being educated and schools need to be able to continue to provide some of that flexibility. So we really may see an increase in more autonomy when it comes to education and women's work. Sydney, I want to change topics. Let's talk about the General Assembly's week. Yeah, so this week actually a session was out for both the House and the Senate, but you wouldn't know that based on the Senate bill filing deadline and all of the bills that have dropped this week. Uh, most notably is a bill that uh, was filed actually by a Republican uh, freshman senator, Kevin Corbin and two other Republicans. It's uh, expanding Medicaid, but they would not call it Medicaid expansion to be clear with regards to allowing women who are, have pregnancy Medicaid right now uh, to be able to continue that 12 months postpartum. Currently it only allows three months postpartum. This would actually extend it to 12 months. And in addition to that, it would actually add the ability for them to um, have tuition-free enrollment in community colleges so that they could further their education. Another, and, and along the same lines with regards to women in health, um, et cetera, um, I was part of uh, two different bills, the pregnant, the Healthcare Pregnancy Protection Act for Women, and then also the Momnibus, which is dealing with some of the issues, the disparities in North Carolina were 40th in, in maternal uh, mortality. And so that would address some of the disparities and issues that we see there and, and have some workplace protections for pregnancy. Another really interesting bill that was filed also um, was by Senator Perry, a Republican in the Senate, and he filed a bill that actually would prevent lobbyists from being on the um, Board of uh, Governors with regards to the UNC system. So there's been a lot of movement with a lot of legislation this, this year, and it'll be interesting to see, especially given the fact that the House hasn't even filed their bills and the, dead fi and the bill filing deadline is weeks away. Donna, Senator Perry, Jim Perry, a freshman, introduced a bill to restrict lobbyists from being on the Board of Governors at North Carolina. I think that is an interesting bill, particularly. Now, Board of Governors has long been a place where sometimes you saw uh, donors, lobbyists, uh, sort of rewarded for a position um, on the Board of Governors. And, and the Board of Governors really does has a lot of control over the direction of the UNC system schools, tremendous amount of control. And I think that this bill is a step toward making that those positions, those Board of Governor positions, more about people who know how to manage large organizations and uh, people who who are there to make it a little bit more balanced and a little more independent. Joe, what have you been following? Uh, interesting. A bill introduced this week, Senator Jim Bergen, a Republican of Harnett County, uh, Senate Bill 534, to create a commission to study, among other things, legislative service, uh, the terms, uh, whether there should be limits placed on the number of times that a, a legislator can run for re-election, the 
limiting the duration, perhaps, of the session of the General Assembly, uh, looking at their compensation and the reimbursements they get for mileage and those sorts of things. This is not uh, unheard of. In past legislatures, there's been an effort to try to address this. Generally thinking, I think legislators are a little apprehensive about anything that could be construed by constituents back home as being favorable to the terms of legislative service. But quite frankly, we ask a lot of our legislators, uh, this humble little thing we call the state of North Carolina is a more or less with the state and federal money combined, a $50 billion a year enterprise. And we would never imagine a $50 billion a year company having a board of directors that it doesn't pay anything more than minimum wage. It doesn't tell them how long the meetings are going to last. And so for us to be able to address the complex issues that the state's going to face going forward, it's probably time for us to take okay. a serious look to make sure the terms of legislative service are appropriate. Mitch, jump in here. Before the legislature went on its spring break, uh, legislators gave Governor Roy Cooper a couple of bills that dealt with education issues. One, a summer school program. Another, the Excellent Public Schools Act that dealt with early literacy. Both of those had some pretty widespread support. During this past week, though, we also saw a bill that's going to get some partisan edge to it on the education front. Another bill in the Senate that would expand both the eligibility and the size of the award for opportunity scholarships. That one's going to split people R's and D's. Okay, I'm changing topics. Mitch, there's been a major surge of unaccompanied minors at our southern border. Three months into his presidency, Joe Biden faces a surefire crisis at the southern border. Uh, we've seen the surge in illegal immigrants coming to the southern border. In March, there was a 15-year high in illegal crossings, now 171,000 people in custody, including a record 19,000 unaccompanied children. Remember, Donald Trump got a lot of criticism when he had about 2,600 unaccompanied children coming into the border, so uh, a much larger scale issue. The, uh, the situation has become so serious that President Biden has suggested he might even restart some of the pieces of the hated border wall that drew so much controversy. Meanwhile, the polls are against the president in his handling of immigration. A recent AP poll showed 56 percent of people are against President Biden's policy on immigration, 55 percent against the way that he's handled border security. The numbers are even worse among independents, 62 percent against him on immigration. 67% against him on border security. Of course, one of the things that's been very harmful for uh, President Biden and has really focused people's attention is all the images that we're seeing, including that video that I think everyone has seen by now of the one little boy crying by himself in the Mexican desert. Not a good sign for the Biden administration. Donna, are the human traffickers winning? Are the cartels winning? Well, local authorities say they definitely are. Arizona Governor Ducey and sheriffs that uh, uh, man areas right along the border say that they're seeing a tremendous surge and very lucrative human human trafficking uh, work by the cartels. They're charging $1,500 per person. Uh, and often, if families are, are too poor to be able to afford that, their children or even they are forced into a human trafficking situation once they get there, or extra members of the cartel are being um, are placed in with families to get through. Now, one of the Sheriffs did say that they're often able to identify those members because they're not dirty. They don't look like they have traveled. They don't have the muddy boots that a lot of the folks who are coming through uh, have. But they said it is an uphill battle. That 19,000 uh, unaccompanied minors in March is huge. The the next closest was about 11,000 in 2019. Uh, in May of 2019, before that, it was 10,000 in 2014 in June. So we're really seeing a massive okay. increase in, in unaccompanied minors. Joe, has the Biden administration been transparent during this whole crisis? 
Well, I think the challenge is to try to address the challenge such as it is, uh, make sure that they are providing the necessary humanitarian uh, services to the people that have crossed the border. But, but I think uh, President Biden probably is facing a significant challenge in explaining why this is a significant problem by comparison with how President Trump handled a similar situation. Again, it comes back to this. I hope the, hopefully the Biden administration will put forward some comprehensive immigration reform, and we probably need to do more to help Joe. those countries in Central and South America to keep these folks from coming to our border in the first place. But was the Remain in uh, Mexico policy working for asylum seekers, do you think, Joe? Well, I, I I'm, can only imagine that this crisis is such a it's such a scale that every policy they try to put in place to stem the particular issue is not going to be as effective as actually fixing what's the root cause of this. And that's why I'm hopeful that the president will put forward something that is substantive in terms of immigration reform. Sydney, uh, the vice president is in charge of the border now. What have we seen from her to date? Uh, so I think that what they're actually doing is reaching out the point with 19,000 unaccompanied minors, uh, the Department of Health and Human Services out to agencies across the country to try and find placements. We know that the stadiums that these children are actually staying in right now are not appropriate. They are subpar for making sure that children obviously get what their needs met. And we know that a number of the children, especially the girls actually who are coming unaccompanied, have been sexually assaulted and raped by the mules that are bringing them over here. Um, and so they are working with agencies across the country to make sure that they can place children as quickly as possible with relatives and also in foster homes and group homes. That's their number one priority right now. Mitch, wrap this up in about 20 seconds. Well, certainly, I think everyone has alluded to the fact that the Biden administration really needs to come up with a good plan, get it in place, and convince people that he does know what he's doing at the border. I think if, if this is not resolved fairly quickly, it's going to uh, metastasize into something that's going to be something he will not be able to recover from. Yeah, I think it's going to be a 2022 issue. Uh, let's go to uh, the gun plan that uh, President Biden unveiled this week, uh, Joe. Yeah, in the Rose Garden at the White House, President Biden announcing some of the executive actions he's going to take to to stem what he can what he characterized as an epidemic of gun violence, saying that it was an international embarrassment to the United States and a blemish on the character of our nation that we endured so many of these large scale shootings in the country. Of course, most of what uh, the president wants to pursue will require congressional action. So we'll see how willing Congress is to take up some of these provisions. But the president, for his part, is able to take action on a few key things. One, ghost guns, which are those guns that can be assembled by an individual. They come in a kit and currently are not required to have a serial number. The president wanted to take action on that. A stabilizing braces, which is a device that makes it easier for what is a pistol to be used, more or less like a short rifle, uh, was involved in a few of the mass shootings in, in in recent years, but it's also uh, the Biden administration's plan to promulgate a model red flag law. 19 states in the District of Columbia currently have these provisions on the books where folks can go to a judge and say that a particular individual is either uh, suffering from a mental illness or is a danger to himself and others and should have weapons removed from their home. Uh, again, we'll, we'll be interesting to see how the NRA, which has had its uh, challenges over the last couple of years from a financial standpoint, does it have the political strength currently to do battle with a Democratic Congress when some of these gun control provisions come before uh, okay. the U.S. House and Senate? Mitch, is the president attempting to legislate uh, via executive order, you think? He issued five executive orders on guns. There's actually a, a mix of views I have about these. Some of the things that he talked about are well within his power. I mean, appointing someone to head the ATF, that certainly makes sense. That's something that the, the president should be doing. I think putting forward 
a red flag law, whether it's good or not, for states to consider. That fits in with the whole federalism. But banning the ghost guns, banning the stabilizing braces, those really seem to be things that should be handled by Congress, not by a president, any president, President Biden, President Trump, anyone. Those are the types of pieces of legislation that should go through the legislative process, have plenty of debate, get some buy-in from all sides. Do you think there can be buy-in, Donna, with as close as the numbers are in this Congress? Well, it's very, very tight in a in a very closely split uh, Congress. One of the things that we're really seeing is that he uh, would like to see executive orders make some concrete changes. He said in his uh, statement at the Rose Garden yesterday, he's asked Attorney General Merrick Garland to identify those concrete things that he can do by executive order without needing Congress. So he's made that the priority uh, right now. And of course, David Chipman, he's nominated for ATF, who is a 25-year veteran of the Alcohol uh, Bureau of alcohol, tobacco, and firearms. Um, Chipman has a, a wealth, a depth of experience uh, handling, you know, high-profile illegal gun operations. He was one of the uh, case analysts in uh, in Waco and the David Koresh um, okay. Branch Davidians. He was also one of the researchers in Oklahoma City. But to those who are really Second Amendment rights uh, advocates, they are concerned that he doesn't have that Second Amendment balance, that perspective. He has the experience, but maybe not the perspective that a lot of responsible gun owners would like to see. Sydney, close this out in about 30 seconds, if you would, please. Yeah, so I think that what's most uh, important is that we can't continue to stick our heads in the sand and act like this is going to go away. Interestingly enough, uh, the General Assembly is actually probably going to take up some leg legislation on guns. The Freedom Caucus, in particular, in the House, is interested in passing some legislation with regards to just simple measures that protect children, such as safety locks on guns, et cetera. I think there are solutions, but it's a multifaceted uh, approach to make sure that people actually are able to have their Second Amendment rights observed, um, but then also making sure that we can stem the gun violence that is plaguing our country. Okay, let's go to the most underreported story of the week, Mitch. It's been widely reported, Mark, that President Biden has some interesting ideas moving forward on uh, dealing with climate change. One piece of this debate that has gotten very little attention is a state-level cap-and-trade deal called the Transportation and Climate Initiative. This started with the governor of Massachusetts, and the idea initially was to get about 12 or 13 northeast and mid-Atlantic states to sign on to the state-level deal. At this point, only three states have signed on, Massachusetts, Connecticut, Rhode Island, plus the District of Columbia. Interestingly enough, Governor Roy Cooper here in North Carolina has signed on to a letter not joining the group, but supporting some of its ideas, but didn't get any publicity for this. He's not touted this on the campaign trail, not said much about it, not answered any questions about it. So it'll be interesting to see what happens with this state-level transportation and climate initiative. Not underreported, please. Uh, the passing of a Democratic representative, Alcee Hastings of, of Florida, uh, he was 84 years old, passed away, longtime public servant, uh, nearly three decades in Congress representing his state of Florida. Uh, I know that he will be sorely missed there. That brings Democrats' uh, edge in the House to seven seats, and six have been vacated by appointees of the Biden administration. So it's going to be a very close election in 2022. It's, it's Joe, getting tighter every day. Joe, underreported, my friend. 
Yes, sir. Well, following up on an underreported uh, story that I offered a few weeks back, uh, the Senator Todd Johnson, Republican from Union County, introducing legislation, Senate Bill 548, to bring under the uh, jurisdiction, in effect, of the state auditor, the entity that sanctions high school athletics in the state of North Carolina. This is involving the North Carolina High School Athletic Association, the nonprofit organization currently that serves that role. Uh, when some of the discussion was being held about how to get fans back in the stands for high school athletics, uh, the legislators discovered that this sanctioning body in North Carolina has a surplus fund of about $40 million, which includes funds it's collected from public high schools as a result of the role it plays in uh, in the sports of the state. And so legislators want to know more about it. The High School Athletic Association pushed back. And so the natural result, legislators have introduced a bill, and I think we'll hear more about this next week in terms of the desire to know more about this $40 million. Will they call people to testify, you think? I'm not sure entirely what all will take place, but I, as, as my mama once said, gosh, it feels like it must be the July 4th because I suspect there's going to be fireworks. Sydney, underreported, please. As uh, broadband usage has actually gone up 30% since the pandemic, uh, none of us are survived by that. The unfortunate part is that many North Carolinians still don't have access to broadband. Kids are going to McDonald's and other parking lots in order to uh, be on virtual school, and individuals who would have the ability to work from home don't have that luxury up here in rural parts of North Carolina. There's some legislation that's been filed in both chambers to address this issue. And I think it's really important that we address as an infrastructure issue because businesses want to come to North Carolina. They want to actually put business, businesses in rural areas, but they need the infrastructure, and broadband is absolutely one of the things that we need to address. So we need to come up with a legislative solution as quickly as possible so that we can make sure everyone has access to broadband. Sydney, what's the timing on that? So in the House, um, there is a similar bill that was filed last session that is moving through, and I believe that it will be filed. And the Senate has a, a similar version. I'm hoping that it's, this, it's going to make through crossover um, by May 13th and so that we can actually start hammering out deals. But there are serious negotiations behind closed doors about how to get that done. Okay, let's go to the lightning round. Who's up and who's down this week, Mitch? What's up is potentially political balance in the classroom. There's a bill in the state Senate, Senate Bill 700, that would guarantee that if there's going to be political discussion about the stances of parties in a social studies class or a class of that sort, right. that you would get both sides. There are three Republican senators who are concerned that students are getting a one-sided view of political issues. They'd like to see more balance. My who's down are the critics of medical marijuana. And the reason I say that is that a very powerful state senator the head of the Rules Committee, Bill Rabin, has filed a bill. He's one of the lead sponsors supporting medical marijuana. That's a major step for those who want to push in that direction. Donna, who's up and who's down this week, please? Uh, up, I'm going to say relatively minor vaccine uh, reactions to the Johnson & Johnson vaccine. Uh, the Department of Health and Human Services announced this week that at PNC Arena, they had to briefly discontinue administering the vaccine because about 18 people had, uh, had reactions to it. 14 were treated on site. Uh, four others were transported to a hospital and released. Uh, but that 18 is only out, is out of about 2,300 vaccines that were administered that day. Uh, down, I'm going to say Andrew Cuomo again. He's now got a Republican challenger who is a pro-Trump Republican. Uh, his name is Lee Zeldin uh, in New York, and he is pointing to Cuomo's uh, sexual harassment um, uh, problems and then, of course, the nursing home deaths and a lot of other uh, crises that have happened in, in New York. And what we're seeing is that Republicans may be seeing a, a first-in-a-decade opportunity in New York. They haven't had a Republican uh, governor there since George Pataki in 2004. Joe, who's up and who's down this week? 
who's up are the number of Charlotteans that ain't from Charlotte. Uh, Zillow, <laughs> the website, did a survey and found that Charlotte was second only to Phoenix, Arizona, in terms of the number of non-native residents moving into the metropolitan area over the last year. Uh, who's down? The, no, the number of people in America that identify as Republicans. A Gallup poll came out. They've tracked people's identity from a partisan basis over the years. Currently, 49 percent of the respondents said they identified as Democrats, only 40 percent uh, as Republicans. That's the biggest gap in the partisan index since 2012. You think that's a Trump effect on the Republican Party in the, in the suburbs? I think a little bit that effect, although it's interesting, if you look within the numbers, the percentage of people that say they are Democrats or Republicans versus their independents leaning one way or the other, the, the portions are, are more or less equal in the two sides. Okay. But I do think this is a reflection of the post-Trump era. Sydney, who's up and who's down this week? Bipartisanship, House and Senate leadership, um, and with with Governor Cooper actually recorded a public service announcement urging North Carolinians to get vaccinated and uh, stating rolling out there everyone has right. a spot to take a shot. And down is uh, Georgia. Our neighbors to the south are facing boycotts and loss of business over their voting uh, legislation that was recently passed. Okay, let's go to the headline next week, Mitch. Thanks in part to uh, Senator Batch's up. I think the headline will be North Carolina vaccinations surge as all adults are now eligible for the vaccine. Donna, what's the headline next week? Well, normally I would say with April 15th tax day, but the IRS announced that they are pushing that paperwork deadline to May 17th this year, but they are not pushing the payments that are due. Great. <laughs> okay, <laughs> headline next week, Joe. Yeah, all is not lost. Legislators prove they still have a sense of humor by introduction of bill to make ACC basketball tournament a state holiday. Headline next week, Sydney. The focus shifts from how to find a shot to how to take, get and take your shot now. Convince others to do so. Mitch, we miss anything? Uh, there's going to be a lot of fireworks coming up as the General Assembly comes back. They'll be uh, getting down to the details of the budget. I think that'll be uh, part of our discussion for weeks to come. Okay, that's it for us. Great job, guys and gals. See you next week on Front Row. Have a great weekend. Major funding for Front Row is provided by Robert L. Luddy. Additional funding provided by... Funding for the Lightning Round provided by... NC Realtors. State Employees Association of North Carolina, Mary Louise and John Burris, Reifenberg Construction, Stefan Gleason, and Jane and Van Hip. A complete list of funders can be found at pbsnc.org slash front row.